danger is stealing in as relapse comes above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 310 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Bend, Oregon. I'm Andrew Brokus, joined by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and Brian Koppelman in New York City. I am. I am in New York City. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. I'm thrilled to be with the two of you. Um, I think this is the third time I've been on, maybe, or fourth. I believe so. Yeah, we, we did the one full interview, and then you were on for the strategy uh, discussion the one time. Correct. So um, I, I'm very happy to be here. And um, when when I listened to the episode uh, that the two of you, Matt, did about um, the cheating scandal that's currently uh, captured the imagination of the whole poker community, both of you, the two of you guys, seemed um, can, not confused exactly, but um, a little bit surprised at how fascinated people are with this. And you were kind of asking the question uh, as to why. And, and I realized this is where I can come in because the two of you are incredible at the uh, analytic uh, game theory parts of poker. But when we're talking about the romantic parts of poker and the narrative <laughs> attached to the same... This is now where you're entering my territory. Yeah, you, you know a thing or two about capturing the imagination of the poker community. N- not, not just understanding it, but creating the, the modern sense of what poker is as we know it. Yeah, yeah. that's. Um, so yeah. I, I wrote you guys and I was like, if you, if you want me to come on and chop it up about this, it would be my pleasure to. And, um, and I think what this gets at the heart of is some pretty primal stuff. And I think it's primal stuff that Americans care a lot about, and I think card players even more, because I think what we're what we're talking about when we're dealing with a cheating scandal are these two, as I said, primal ideas. There are things that are just in our not only the collective unconscious but our conscious minds a lot of the time, and I'm interested to see how how this stuff hits off of you. But but one of those is the notion really prevalent in our society that everything is a scam and people are constantly trying to get over and coupled with the notion or the fantasy that ultimately right will prevail and wrongdoers will get caught. Mm-hmm. And this story has both of those things. This has not just, uh, we also are fascinated by the person who is like a gunslinger who gets by on their wits and can outsmart authority. And so when we hear about somebody cheating a casino um, at a table game, we are immediately on their side because they're defeating um, the monolith. Mm -hmm. But when we hear about somebody, and then if we heard about somebody who was um, a card mechanic in the Old West and got drawn on by somebody else, we would both be in awe of the Doc Holliday-like figure who could cheat. Um, we would also be glad that the sheriff got guns out on that person. But when we hear a story about somebody using technology in a very basic way 
to try to scam other people and doing it in league with the monolith, that fires us a sense of outrage in us because it it seems to encapsulate um, a whole bunch of stuff that we worry about at a just below the surface way, which is the game is rigged. The people in charge were supposed to be refereeing it or rigging it too. And how can somebody like me possibly uh, get over if that's the case? And then here we have a woman who was smart enough to figure it out, started talking about it, was criticized, ostracized, and then ultimately listened to. So you get the Cassandra element of this thing. And so for me, if it weren't completely compelling to all of us um, humans who aren't constantly thinking about hand ranges, I would be surprised. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and as always, I'm speaking only for myself. Uh, something you briefly hinted at. Uh, how, how much is this idea that we're all being surveilled all the time? We only sort of consent to it or we consent to it and we don't really have a better option. And that's being used against us in ways we only sometimes get glimpses of. And again, in my view, this is not a great way to think about it. And I'm only speaking for myself. But is that is that part of what's going on here from your perspective? Oh, that's really good. Um, we're all only speaking for ourselves. This is all conjecture on my part, too. It's only um, I have an awareness of like sort of the history of the literature on this stuff and the ways in which. Um, in the ways in which this stuff has been used to tell stories that have have um, in, engaged people for a very long time. And that's why I, I can speak with some sense of authority about it. But of course, Nate, the fact that um, we so many of us have devices in our homes that we've sort of forced ourselves to forget, have the capacity to listen to us at all times and report into either whichever big brother we choose apple or amazon i have one of each in our apartment mm -hmm. and um what we do i think is we turn off the uh we turn off our constant awareness of it we know it so when one of these things cracks out of turn and suddenly answers a question about the weather that you didn't ask it we kind of get freaked out for a second but we constantly do this balancing act so in in the case of the poker cheating scandal um and the whole card cams and this sort of um you know, there was this slow way this stuff was brought out and, it, you know, we're on a half hour delay, then we weren't on a delay, then stuff was in the The way that um, that stuff, people who buy in, you know, Andrew, you were talking about how in the World Series, if you want to invite it to sit at the feature table, you have to sit at the feature table and you have to show your whole cards. So we've all sort of consented to this intrusiveness. And so, yeah, that's definitely like, a, um, a, a low um, thrum underneath that's telling us uh, something is going on, but we've been able to willfully, uh, in our buying into it, forget or convince ourselves of the possibility of cheating. Uh, getting cheated is distant because we think there are these regulators. And that's why this thing really stokes the paranoia because, again, Whoever in the booth was feeding him this information, um, it was betraying our collective faith. And the fact that then they're caught 
really excites us. And then horribly enough, you know, makes us like at the home games I've gone to since. I've heard nothing but stories about cheating at home games. And I was sitting with, let me ask the two of you this. How much do you think about, one of you said last week, you're really aware when you go into a cash game of the possibility. Um, And obviously I've studied it my whole life, so I'm always thinking about it. But how much do you think the average card player who sits down in a cash game is thinking about the way in which it could be aligned against him or her or them? Very little. And I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I think with the uh, one thing I've said on the air many times, um, and I'll try to keep it short this time for that reason, is that um, since the boom, there are a lot of players who don't know the history and the whole world of cheating around poker. And there's this collective sense that there's just not that much cheating in poker. And um, the idea it's, it's a bit like, uh, until a couple months ago, the sort of accepted line on voter fraud, it's like, yes, there might be a little bit, but it doesn't tip the scales and it's somehow wrong to focus on it. I think a lot of people have that idea about cheating in poker where, yes, there might be just a very little bit, but um, lightning's probably not going to strike you and your attention is better spent elsewhere. Uh, plus just not being historians of the game, just not knowing that much about it. I I think there's very, very little awareness of it. And that's really something to me, given that all three of us have been playing poker um, since since a time when um, anybody who played poker would have had a sense of cheating as a a sort of fundamental part of the world of the game. What do you think, Andrew? I think there's also a, a desire, like, I think, you know, people want to play poker. There's not a lot they can, or at least they don't feel like there's a lot they can do about the possibility that they might be getting cheated. So I think there's also just sort of a desire to um, tell oneself it's not that much of a thing to to worry about, like, because the consequence would be, the or a, a consequence for many people might be then that they just shouldn't play, right? Like, if they're already probably not favorites to win, well, and they're not favorites sure. to detect a cheat, like, but they don't like that outcome. Well, sure. Like, um, I mean, similar to this, the idea, like when you go driving on a rainy night and uh, weird roads, you don't, you're aware of it, but you're sort of trusting these other cars that nobody's <laughs> drive into you and nobody's going to be drunk. Yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> and you're not really aware of how, I mean, you are aware of the stats, right? And we all know the stats, yet we get in the car and we drive on a rainy night on a Saturday when we know some percentage of the people, 8% um, are drunk. And and I think we're really bad. As you guys talk about plenty, and as I know is the case with someone like me who's uh, who's who's not great at this stuff, is we are not great. Yeah, I bet you even you guys, as great as you are at numbers, you're probably not great at reminding yourself of what that percentage translates to in terms of risk on the road. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's hard. And it, 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 it's also like, I mean, I'm, if anything, too attentive to things like driving risk and um i'm also the parent of a two-year-old so among other things i see the world as uh, a a large set of potentially lethal hazards <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah. even uh yeah yeah but it's hard and it, it 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 varies street to street and it's hard to have any good quantitative sense of i know i'm i'm not as good as it at, at it as i would like to be There's, certainly and i'll say something else there's also a romance that we attach as I started to say to like, you know, part of the reason that um, 
the television show that Dave and I make works so well on people is, you know, uh, Bobby Axelrod is sort of against this whole system that's trying to take him down. And so that and they want Chuck to catch him the right way, but they want Bobby to be able to get away with it as long as they think that he's not stacking the thing in a way that nobody could ever catch him, that there's that there still is this whole monolith. That there's money and power against him. Yeah. Um, and and I think about when I was first getting attracted to the game of poker. Um, I would read, you know, I've been into it my whole, like you said, my, my whole life, you know, I started playing at eight years old. I lost uh, uh, my whole camp canteen and then that was it. I, I was hooked to getting good at it. Um, but I would read the Texas, the books about the Texas road gamblers, as I'm sure you guys read some of them, you know, and you would read Cloutier's story, you would read Doyle's stories, and you would read about Sailor Roberts, and Sailor Roberts and Doyle are playing under the same bankroll, and they're going game to game, and they're bringing their weapons, and then sometimes they'll have to, wa- and when I say weapons, I don't mean their poker weapons, I mean those guys were carrying <laughs> guns, yeah. and they would walk in, and sometimes they would see a cantina of people And they'd know two of them were cheating. And so those two guys would write about how they weren't going to get cheated. So they were going to angle shoot those, you know, the people at the table. And you're inside that narrative. And so you're rooting for them. The the problem is, as you guys said, um, most of us aren't aware of what to look for. Most of us don't understand statistical anomalies. Most of us are not able to tell the difference between a heater and um, a run when somebody is cooking the books in some way. And because of that swirl, a lot of us uh, try to try to sort of dim the noise about the possibility of being cheated. And so when something like this shows up, it's like a dog hearing a sound and suddenly sitting straight up with its tail in the air and its ears pointed because, ah, I can finally find out the truth about all this and I can extrapolate from this into how it's affecting my own game, my own life, my own place. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, Andrew, it sounded like you were going to say something. I, I was. I was going to say, when you talk about the um, the sort of Texas road gamblers, or I think we don't even have to go back that far. I mean, I think even... Uh, like rounders is is still about an era of poker where the game is like largely operating outside of the traditional legal system which doesn't mean that it doesn't have its own you know norms and and expectations and and remedies for people who who break those norms and you know there is that the the important scene of of the two of them getting caught and getting their asses kicked for for cheating and i think we're at a a transitional point in poker maybe even a little bit past the fulcrum but where poker has moved away from that um world of of just having its sort of own norms and enforcement mechanisms and moving into the more traditional um established u.s judicial system we are like we think we are andrew and i think that's part of maybe the problem is that, in fact, people who choose to do this with their lives, play poker with their lives, I think we have to separate them into a few groups. There are some who are game players in a good sense. They um, love to play backgammon. They love to play chess. They have an acuity for poker. They play. They start winning. They realize they can make a living at it. Then there are some people who love the lifestyle and have that acuity. They want to be gamblers. They want to be poker players. They want to live in a casino. 
and they want to do it by beating a game legitimately. But I think then there's another group of people who see it still and will always see it as a way to make um, an easy dollar by cheating. And here's a problem. I think a problem is that the industry, the world of poker, um, really tries in general or has always tried to minimize and I understand why they've tried to minimize the possibilities of cheating, but it's even like the way we've all just allowed um, this idea that poker players stake other poker players. When, w- which, if you, you know, it, when men did it, everybody w- got up in arms, right? A long time ago. Now it's just um, assumed, and everybody trusts that everybody's going to play fairly in those situations. Uh, um, men, by, by men, you mean men win. By the way, just, I do men the master. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just for, just, just throwing in a footnote for you. Oh yeah, for the audience. Yes, yes. of course. Yes, yes. of course. Yeah. Sorry, which they can read. I mean, it's very that stuff's very available to everybody. But I remember when we made tilt and we alleged in that show that um, the big game in Vegas at times wasn't always played straight up. Uh, well, I'll say two things. One, one of everybody's favorite scenes in rounders. Uh, sorry, I'll say three things. One, in Rounders, we show, you know, people who've watched that movie over and over and over again and, and then are in the poker world. That scene when Worm t- says to Roman and Maurice, uh, no speaking Sputnik at the tables. you got to speak English. Yeah. I think many people now don't understand that's about cheating, uh, which yes. is funny coming from Worm. But back then when I would play in the underground clubs, you would sometimes get people from Russians who would speak Russian and you knew they were sharing information about their hands. And the reason you have to speak one language at the table isn't xenophobic. It's so that you can't cheat. Uh, It's the same thing. If, if you, we went to play in France, we can't just speak English to each other at the table. We would have to speak French or not speak because uh, uh, if they didn't speak English, they would be um, able, you know, we could advantage play against them. Uh, And and then I would say the other Two things that I, I want, wanted to point out is, you know, people love the the scene um, in Rounders at uh, in Atlantic City when the, they're piranhas. And, you know, that we say that we're not uh, playing together. We're not playing against each other either. I mean, that's a form of cheating, isn't it? Yes. If we understand <laughs> that uh, I'm not going to raise, you, you know, if I raise you. I'm not fucking with you. I'm raising you so you get out of the hand, and I, I'm the one who's going to play against the Taurus. I mean, that's another way of uh, sharing information that's um, a kind of cheating. And then the third thing I was going to say is that when we made the show Tilt, and we depicted the big game in Vegas as not always being on the up and up. Now, it was a known, not even a secret, I mean, that was a known thing in the world of poker, that there were times that a business person could come to Vegas, and yeah, they might sit in a straight game, and at a certain point, there's no doubt they were. But there were times when there was, at at best, collusion in some of those games. And Very well known. There's there's no doubt about this. <laughs> right. Look, I admire some of the people who played in those games so much. They're great poker players, and it was probably out of expedience that they were doing that. They're brilliant. you know. But it was also the culture from which they came, meaning... The, 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 the way they came up when they had to defend themselves against being cheated. I mean, it's all understandable, but the part that's not so understandable to me is Poker World's insistence that cheating doesn't go on. Be, because the Poker World has tried very hard 
to never allow anyone to know, for instance, that there were games in Las Vegas that were um, up that were supported by the casinos. The, the the shift managers knew, the bosses knew, the casino owners. I mean, not only did the casino owners know, sometimes the casino owner played in that game, and uh, or the casino president played in that game, right? So we that was all going on, and yet we all act like it wasn't going on, which is to say that we like to whisper about being on the inside of this shit, but we don't, do, and, and that's part of the romance of it, and that's part of feeling like an insider, and that's part of feeling like we know what the shot is, and that's part of feeling like we're not um, marks, we're sharps, and that's all great, But the and, and it all goes to why we're fascinated by this, but the problem with that is it sets up a construct where the average person who we all want to get into the game of poker can't uh, get a fair shake necessarily. And something like this opens everybody's eyes to that fact. And I guess lastly, on this specific thing, I'll say, Nate, when you say or Andrew, I forget which one you just said it, that the poker world is different now than it was in the rounders days. I actually think that's a very um, that's a. I don't. I'm not using privileged in the way we use it, because, <laughs> but that's a, like I still live in New York City, right? And so I could go play every night of the week still. And some of those games are going to be raked games, and some of those games are going to be friend games. And the raked games are, you know, there was a raked game in New York uh, when I was at my my the game I play in every week last week. They people were showing me screenshots. Now this is we're in 2019, almost 2020. So there was a game going here, uh, a 5-10 game that played kind of big. And these it turns out um, some good poker players found they were losing more than they normally lose. Like, you know, people who um, record every, hand, you know, every uh, outing so they know their results. Mm-hmm. They know that their winning percentage is X. In this game, their winning percentage over a long period of time, taking variance out, was way lower than X. They started looking at it and they realized there were four guys, maybe three women, three guys and a woman. They were showing up. Check this out. They were showing up. Or, and this is the kind of thing. So when you say people don't know what to look for, here's something to look for. It would seem so innocent. So there's a game in an apartment in the city. It's a rake game with a dealer. A couple of guys would show up early, half hour early. They would grab the decks and start playing Chinese poker. Mm. They were switching in a deck during the Chinese poker. The deck they were switching in was a secretly marked deck that had infrared markings. They had contact lenses that they were wearing and they switched the deck in and now there were four confederates, two come at any given time. One would build the pots, the other would collect. Somebody figured out the scam after like six months. They took infrared pictures of the cards. I've seen the cards. I've seen the pictures. And that had to, these guys had to steal a few hundred thousand dollars from a New York City game with very smart people in it. Some very sharp card players, but very successful, smart people just got completely ripped off by these four Confederates. You know, and you would see you'd show up and look, hey, 
there's, you know, this, I don't want to say even names pretending because I don't want to accidentally say the name people. <laughs> so I'll say your names. Like, look, there's Nate and there's Andrew. Well, they're playing Chinese. Great. Hey, guys. And now, you know, I'm sure they're bringing a beer to the game or they're bringing a drink. And they had a huge scam going. And when we hear about this and we talk about it, um, it somehow ties us to the Wild West, I think, to frontier justice and um, to the notion of the con artist. And, and all that stuff um, remains compelling. And But to me, I take it all as an incredible warning. Yes, in Las Vegas and in many states, poker is legal and regulated. But if you're going to sit down and gamble with other people, you have to be aware of the fact that some of them are approaching it purely as a business and some of them are approaching it as a business that they can con and we have to be vigilant about it and like th think about all the things that people to do to steal five dollars now think about all the things they do to steal five hundred dollars now think about what they do to be able to take that game for six figures which i don't doubt they did because you know the blinds are a decoration in, in a lot of those games <laughs> but, well the game that i so the game that i play in regularly is a 510 game um it's not uncommon for someone to lose four thousand or five thousand dollars in that game. So if you have, if if you have you know three people losing four thousand dollars, you only need to play ten times if you're getting most of that money to get a hundred thousand, right? So, um, and it's not hard to in, induce people to lose four thousand dollars at a five ten game when you're building pots and cheating them because you can see their cards, which means not one bluff can work which means every one of your bluffs can work, which means you know, you know, what's the biggest question you have when you hit a huge hand is like, well, how can I build? I mean, how much time do you two spend on here? Is it a two street hand? Is it a three street hand? Can I get action? You know, if suddenly you really understand, oh, wow, that guy's got, uh, that guy's got a set of sevens. I have a set of nines. He's not going anywhere. I can just blast. You're able to take advantage in a way that's almost inconceivable and so all this speaks to why we have to defend ourselves, but all this also speaks to why it's so fascinating. Because anytime you open our eyes to something that's been going on, um, it's really matrixy, right? That's why I say it's primal. It's really about this notion that I'm living in a world I can't, I don't see clearly. Uh, you know, I'm colorblind and suddenly I can see. Or I'm being, you know, every I'm looking at the patina, but suddenly we can strip the patina away and I can see everything. And that's what this kind of scam reveals to us. And that's why I think we can't spend too much time on it. That's why I think you guys could do four episodes that talk about this stuff, because all the strategy in the world, all the game theory in the world doesn't matter if you're playing in a rigged game, right? You could be the greatest pool player on earth, but if somebody has tilted that table slightly in a way that only they understand, you're not going to probably win at that game of pool. And so... There's a million examples of that, but we we it's worth it for us to all understand why this matters and what we can do about it. All right. So, hey, Sean, can you take a clip of that? And now whenever people write into the show saying that I talk about cheating too much, I'm just going to send them <laughs> a link to that. That's and good. Uh, yeah. So some of that to me is the flip side of something that is like really nice and inspiring about poker. Um which is, I think of poker as a great redemption story, a great American redemption story, um, because it was a cheating game and almost just 
purely a cheating game for a while and through collective action and like a collective recognition that it's a beautiful game um formally on its own right uh we've managed to build you know at least sometimes at least in some places um this wonderful honest honest ish skill game out of it uh, and, and because of that it's a redemption story, but sort of with every redemption story comes the chance of a fall, right? <laughs> or, if I say it's a redemption story in progress. Yes, of course. I mean, yeah, yes. Redemption stories tend to be that way, I think. Um, yes, good. Yes. Um, uh, do, do you I agree look, with that at all? Thing, right? Nobody loves poker more than I do, and nobody's life has been measured. I, I think it might be fair to say that, like, other than maybe a couple of World Series winners and and you know most of them like you know give a lot back right away. <laughs> like i have probably profited and my life's been enriched more by the game of poker than almost anybody else and um and i so i want the game to continue right i if if, if we think about it rounders gave you know by finding that story david and i wrote that movie that gave me the opportunity all these years later the two of us to create billions and to have this entire career and i've never been away from the game either you know i've never not played cards and it's never not been something i've thought about uh you know i think about poker hands all the time i think about how i misplayed things i think about i listen to your podcast religiously the game matters to me and in a in a deep way and so when i see something like this um it bothers me in a deep way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i don't think we're making that's why you know andrew it it, it you it did seem on the on the last podcast as though this were maybe just more of a little annoyance um, and a little blip, but I think we can't allow ourselves to believe it's a little blip. I think we have to believe it's a symptom, and we have to like look at what where disease might show up and and how to eradicate it. Yeah, that's fair. The, um, the the point that I meant to make about uh, the, the the transition between it, it w- w- was not to suggest that there uh, isn't cheating going on, particularly not in you know like the underground uh, or, or sort of or not even quasi <laughs> legal games um, yeah. that are happening places, but more like what the remedy for that is expected to be. Um, where you know I, I think had you cheated. Doyle Brunson 50 years ago, um, he wasn't calling the police. And, you know, what I'm not saying he was necessarily shooting people either, but like someone was shooting people for for, for, for cheating in, in those kinds of games. And so like, I think largely now we've we've kind of delegated that authority or expectation that that's going to happen through the legal system rather than through kind of like extra legal brutality. And um, but so then there, there is that question of, well, who are the people who are supposed to be enforcing this? Like, are, are regulators capable of doing it? Are is it even possible to get through to regulators if the organizers of the game, uh, even if they're not actively in on it, you know, they kind of have a little bit of an interest in not bringing it to light. Well, or, every single poker player who was in a game with Possel has to cause action. And and one could probably make a case for fraud, right? So it'll be now. Has he been? She hasn't been charged with anything yet, has he? Uh, I don't think criminally. I mean, there, there's there's definitely a civil lawsuit that's been filed against quite a few people, including Passel. So yeah, that's a great that's a great remedy. I'm not looking for frontier justice, although you know the justice meted out in the movie Casino 
isn't bad in in breaking that guy's hands or for that matter in kingpin um is uh <laughs> you know it's understandable why people react in that way we can't now in this culture of course and um in our culture we punish far too frequently actually uh, and the wrong people all the time and so there i definitely don't want a return to frontier justice i more want us all to be i'm less interested in punishment and i'm more interested in uh vigilant and us all being vigilant about uh not getting suckered in that way um because even before if you you know you can't spot the sucker you're the sucker it's like make sure it's a clean game make sure it's a game you're not going to get um suckered in that other way we're all going to walk into games where where we are overmatched we're all going to play badly sometimes we're, we're all going to make mistakes at the table i just want um a poker world that uh is going to reward me and you if we play to our uh very best for a long period of time i i think that's good okay can i ask you a question about billions yeah ask a related any, question ask a, oh, man. <laughs> yeah um so i've i've said something so to say something on air that i've said off the air i i i watch one television show that television show is billions i don't have time for a lot of tv but billions is just so good that that, that that's that's my one and i know and i like you but i care much too much about my aesthetic life to make that my one tv show if it weren't fucking amazing so thank, thank you. you uh how much like there's uh those of us who come from poker and who know <sighs> know know your background um uh, how much of this uh da, 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 this idea of 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 rolling up your sleeves and getting a little bit dirty but not too dirty you know doing it the right way you know maybe maybe playing in gray areas but but doing it the right way how, how much of that sensibility uh which which you see on the show, how, how much of that comes from poker for you? How, how, how much, how well, much of the, not, the ethics of the show uh, comes from poker? You know, I'll say one thing is like, I think most of us who do what I do, you know, if I look back now on 22 or 23 years of, and it's great talking to you guys now, because tomorrow Columbus day is when David and I wrote, we'd been researching and outlining, but Columbus day is when we wrote the first 10 pages of the script that became rounders. So we work every Columbus day, no matter what, um, in sort of honoring that for ourselves. So when you look back, you notice themes, right? That you're not even aware. You've been basically interested in the same kind of people for your whole career. And there's no doubt that if we look at billions and uh, the oceans movie we did and solitary man and the girlfriend experience and knockout guys and rounders i mean we are constantly going back to these gray area kind of people i think a lot of it has to do with the way i grew up watching people uh businessmen mostly on long island and the ways in which they would mythologize themselves the ways in which they would talk about skirting the law getting away with one um you know, finding out a way to not pay their taxes or to hide something or um, so there was all that stuff. There was a love of Western movies and that culture. And then, yeah, man, look, poker has been a defining thing in my life for as long as I can remember. Uh, it's, you know, if I were a little bit better at it, it's something I would have really, I think, tried to do with my life. I, I love it enough, I think to do to do that with my life and so it definitely um that ethos definitely informs everything that we do 
But I think that the kind of people who are drawn to poker are, look, a lot of hedge fund managers are great poker players. So I do think that there's a consonance there. Like, I, I think that the characteristics that make a great hedge fund manager are consonant with characteristics that make a great card player. And the same temptations and then the same, um, the same wrestling with temptation that those kind of people face. So I think it's all, it is all one world. Like, I think that the world David and I write about is peopled with um, individuals who are faced with deciding how gray they want to go and um, what the risk reward is at a given time, both practically and from a perspective of like their internal lives. Yeah. Thanks. That's a good answer. Also, this podcast has an explicit tag. You can say stop speaking fucking Sputnik if you want. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, gentlemen, it's so much fun to talk to you. So glad to join the two of you. I hope that this podcast keeps I said it to you last time. Um, and uh, I hope that this has earned me one more uh, strategy session when I need it. When happy, Honestly, happy whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, fellas. Take care of yourselves. Take care. Okay. Bye. All right. Well, that was pretty cool to have uh, Brian Koppelman <laughs> offer to, to come on the show and share his thoughts on on cheating in poker. What a cool thing. Yeah. A legend, a legend of poker, a legend of poker. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always, always excited to have him on the show. And I, I experience with him what people sometimes uh, describe experiencing with us, like talking to us and then having a hard time reminding yourself that the conversation is interactive, like you're not just listening to him. <laughs> yeah, because I've, I've listened to a fair bit of his uh, podcast, and it, yeah. it, like, it's, it's kind of surreal to be like talking to that voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm very, like, I find it very distinctive, too. Um, so, yeah, it was great. It was great. He's, uh, he's got his finger on the pulse of poker more than just about anyone else, just about anyone else, as modest as he may be about it. So, um, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. And, uh, you know, what else is fun? I, I started the show in part because I was turned on to the possibilities of podcasting by an old baseball podcast, which I've talked about, but not recently. Uh, on this show it's uh, up and in the baseball prospectus podcast which has now been defunct for like over five years but i still love it still my favorite podcast ever uh and i remember being a super fan of the show binging episodes of it etc and um that that's every so often we hear about somebody who does with our show what i did with that show or even like a more extreme version of it uh, and it's extremely flattering. And now we have somebody doing that with our show and tweeting about it. Yeah. Um, so the, this the strategy hand, I should say, is like slightly influenced by nepotism. Like I think it's a reasonably interesting hand, but it's definitely out that this guy has been tweeting about uh, listening to <laughs> to our show. Yeah. Um, every it, day you, for for weeks now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you if you can make a plausible case 
chance that you've listened to 80 episodes of the show in like a month or two months or some (laughs) (laughs) disturbingly short amount of time, uh, you know, ties go to the runner, you know, where, where the runner is you, um, (laughs) you, you, you've got a leg up in getting your hand read on the air. Uh, he's just like, it's just like a nice little, uh, notification to get every day. That's, you know, just someone's like, Hey, I'm enjoying that thing that you did. Like, yeah, like a nice little daily, uh, affirmation. Yeah, and like right now he's getting to like I'm reliving <laughs> uh, the past you know seven years of my life right now. Uh, so he's getting to the part where we go on the poker news feed. Remember that? <laughs> he's listening to the last uh, non iBus show that we had for a while. So so that's you know he's he's gonna have to skip over the lost episodes or get them somewhere or or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean a fair number of the lost episodes have, have I just put another one up today so i mean if, if he cares to like skip forwards and and back again um yeah yeah then he'll uh, i mean that's a, a fair number of those are are now available but they won't be chronological in his in his feed i wonder if there will ever be like a machete order but for the thing podcast <laughs> <laughs> who was it that talked about that on on the show um i'm blanking on his name but it was the guy behind the micros uh ray Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. At first I thought it was Killing Bird, but it's not Killing Bird. Different creative guy. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, for for those who don't know, which would have been me, the machete order is um, something that people believe passionately in as a way to watch Star Wars. It's it's a recommended order for the Star Wars movies. (laughs) Yeah, although it... That was before the the newest Star Wars movie, so I guess right, there's, there's probably more. like a revised machete order now that <laughs> incorporates the newest films. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be right. useful to you in like five or six years. It, it's going to be like good that you know this exists because it'll be time for you to expose your son to Star Wars. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Star Wars I haven't seen, and I'm just waiting to watch it with my son. So like, it's oh, I, cool. I, I'll, yeah, yeah, no, it's good. There's a lot of stuff like. I just never got around to or wasn't exposed to or whatever like that that i'm really looking forward to experiencing for for the first time with my son um and yeah star wars is one of those things it should be it should be fun unless like he has no interest in it in which case he has no interest in it and that's fine too um but yeah no no you have to force your son to like the things that you like yeah baseball uh, is uh often ends up in that category (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know he likes you know sometimes he wants to you know pick up the phone bat sometimes it's uh yeah yeah i'd say i'd say medium i'd say he has like medium interest uh right, right now raking the leaves is his big thing he loves raking the leaves that's 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 something you hours on end um <laughs> almost literally <laughs> Um, so raking the leaves these days is to my son what this show is to the guy who wrote the email that we should get around to reading huh? (laughs) you stepped on my ability to make a more rake is better joke but anyway Uh, Um, the yeah the the, the last thing I want to say about (laughs) this person is (laughs) segue denied (laughs) (laughs) no 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 this this is back to the to the handing question um, uh, okay. I just like part part of the, the nepotism thing is that like I don't get the sense that those tweets were like designed to get his hand on the air. Like I'm I'm very suspicious of anyone with an agenda, but like I don't get like his his enjoyment of the show seems like pure and like, it was just sort of like hey I've been listening to the show and here's a hand and not like I've been tweeting at you so that you would put my hand on on the air just to discourage other people who might be encouraged to do something like that. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, do you think people would do that? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm overestimating our... Uh... I mean, another thing you can try if you're in that position is just <laughs> writing to us politely and like... <laughs> Yeah, you send us enough. You send us enough hands. Your chances get real good after a while. <laughs> That's true. I, I, I do feel guilty if I see hands from the same people over and over again and I haven't used them. I mean, you know, like especially like if you follow the uh, the, the the recommendations which we talk about, like you know, explain your thinking. It shouldn't just be a bad beat story. Um, you know, politeness is good. Giving some thought to it, like you know. If if you do that, it's it's you're you're gonna get your hand on the air, and don't don't have a subject line that could be suggestive of penis enlargement because we get a lot of spam email at that address, and I'm pretty aggressive about deleting stuff. So uh, you know, make make sure it's clear that this is a poker email. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if you think that the chance to read the hand is a fantastic opportunity for us, do not put the subject line like "fantastic opportunity for you." <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it's uh... right, so. Here's the sand from <laughs> the uh, right. the person in question. By the way, on Twitter is uh, Anthony Mandia, and he's uh, he's also a um, a tournament poker edge person. So you may have recognized him from the TPE uh, universe. But his Twitter handle, if people are curious, is Maniac One One Three Zero. So thanks, Anthony, for uh, your tweets and for listening and for this hand that you sent us. This hand comes from an online tournament on America's Card Room. It's a $1.10 buy-in and $2,000 guarantee. Uh, he says, the cool thing about this tournament is that you can rebuy, double rebuy, and add-on. All of the money that players spend for buy-ins, rebuys, and add-ons gets donated to bithope.org, breast cancer awareness charity. I thought that was really cool and I was quite liberal with my rebuys and add-ons. Anyway, I played this tournament a few hours ago and this hand came up. It's similar to a hand that I posted on TPE recently, but I think there's an element that makes it a little different. Also, I'd like to note that we are roughly 6 to 10 players from the money in this hand. So, 6 to 10 players from the money. Um, I guess one thing that would be useful to know here is like how many players are going to make the money. You know, in, in, I'm assuming this is a pretty big field since it's a $1 tournament, uh, in which case like 6 to 10 players is quite close to the bubble. You know, if there were only... 20 players are going to cash and we're 6 to 10 players from the money, then you're, you're still pretty long ways from the bubble and there's not going to be nearly as much of a like ICM effect on how the hand goes down. Yeah. Um, so as it happens here, our hero at this table at least has the second largest stack. The, area, the big blind has 33.5 blinds, our hero has 23.5, and, and then um, other people at the table have stacks ranging from 5 to 18 big blinds. So we don't know what stacks look like at the other table, but my guess is that our hero is a pretty strong favorite to cash here if uh, he doesn't go broke in the next couple of hands. Just kind of guessing what other stacks at other tables look like and how many people are probably going to cash in this $1 tournament. Um, we probably are quite close to, to the bubble, and hero seems like has an above average stack, even though it's only 23 and a half blinds. <coughs> Um, so we're at the 1200-2400 level. Uh, the hero opens to 5k with pocket queens under the gun. And the big blind, who's the only player who covers him, calls. So this is like a 2.25x open, something like that. and Or no, even smaller than that, barely over 2x open. Uh, and peeled by the big blind. 
Our hero has pocket queens with the queen of diamonds, and the flop is seven seven deuce with two diamonds. And I guess maybe even before I get to the flop, is there a reason to do anything different here? I mean, slightly larger raise, limp under the gun. You know, would the fact that we're close to the bubble change the way you you played uh, queens under the gun? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in this case, I would probably. So sorry, how deep is the big blind? Uh, the big blind has thirty three and a half blinds. Our hero has twenty three and a half. Yeah, I mean, I, I often will just add just a tick onto the race, like literally tenths of a big blind, um, just because if you do the arithmetic, it can make a pretty big difference to the big blind calling, um, and like making everybody else play a bit more honest, and uh, especially if you're already tightening up your ranges a bit for legitimate ICM reasons um you know raising a little bit bigger can can be good to go along with that so uh that's my argument for raising more my argument for limping is that sometimes you want to limp your whole range in early position but i very rarely do that in tournaments and i believe i've never done that in a one dollar charity online (laughs) tournament (laughs) so but i'm mentioning it more for completeness um no it's fine raise you know i like I like the size, you know, in his spot, just reporting what I probably would have done. I probably would have raised it like two and a half X in that spot. But I I think what he did is fine. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, it's a very small difference. Uh, I wouldn't limp. Even if you wanted to have some kind of limping range, Queens is probably not a great hand to include in there, Um, especially not with the big blind being the one player who covers you. Uh, you just like it is a hand that benefits a fair bit from preflop folds, especially when you're on the bubble. Like just raising and having everyone fold right now is a really a, a quite good outcome for you. Much better than it usually is when you have queens. Now, if you had a hand but, as strong but, as but even that is already so, sorry, uh, but even that is a lot better than people think. Like yes. people, people grow, but like especially if there's an ante, like when you raise and take it from early position with queens, you would be surprised at at how good an outcome that is. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, there are uh, definitely but, like better possible outcomes, but not necessarily better EV outcomes. You know, like, everyone sort of imagines like, oh, maybe someone jams on me with jacks, or like I flop an overpair and someone else has top pair and we get stacks in. Like, I mean, obviously there are like much better outcomes, but there are also much worse outcomes. Like, there, there's a lot of variance attached to going to a flop, whereas just getting like guaranteed, uh, you know, pre-flop two and a half blinds or whatever is a pretty great outcome. Yep. Um. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is right. So we get called by the big blind. Yes. Uh, so we're heads up with 13,280 in the pot and about 51K, 51.5K remaining in the hero stack. So we're looking at SPR a little under four, three and a half uh, SPR. And the flop is seven, seven deuce with two diamonds. Our hero has pocket queens with the queen of diamonds. Big blind checks. What do you like? Uh, so we made it a little bit smaller preflop. Uh, the big blind does cover us. He was getting a good price. Um, well, what does he probably have? Does he have a lot of nothing? Well, yes, he probably does have a lot of nothing. Would he have peeled with Jack Nine suited? Yes. Would he have peeled with like any suited ace? Yes. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. yes, I'm saying yes. Or, yeah, or, um, or three some of those hands, maybe, but yeah, I mean, yeah, um, you know, could he have any pocket pair? Well, the ones he didn't three bet, yes. Like, 
Well, sometimes people appeal with things like Jack 8 offsuit here. Well, they shouldn't, but they, they do. You know, Jack 9 offsuit is a lot more defensible. Still bad, I think. Jack 10 offsuit is downright fine. Um, so, you know, he's got a lot of hands. Some of them do have sevens in them. Um, the question is, like, does this hand count as the nuts? Like, usually an SPR of four, um, the queens are, like, super, super, super nutty. Um, I think even with the ICM effects here, uh, we should not, like, be looking to fold. Or, like, you really can't control the pot. It's only two bets to get all in. Uh, like, you know, two pot size bets to get all in or, or, or a pot size bet and a pot size raise. So even if we check back, you know, it could easily go bet, bet, turn and river. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're playing for stacks if our opponent wants us to anyway. So I don't think that we should be like looking to get away from the hand or looking to like be cautious. Um, you know, checking is not a compromise. You know, it's, it's something that a lot of people say sometimes is like, well, I like my hand, but I don't know. Like it's the tournament. You know, I decided to you know, play it safe. Just you know, just just check back, see what develops. And like, you know, there are a lot of good times to check and see what develops. But like, really, why are you checking here? Except like you're scared. If you're scared. Now, all that said, there are some good reasons to check. Um, for example, uh, your opponent could have a lot of like ten nine offsuit, jack ten offsuit, all those hands I listed before. A lot of them, a lot of the time when you're ahead, uh, you're just going to get a fold. Um, and and on the one hand, that's fine. That's the next thing to talk about. That's like fine sometimes, and even more fine than usual given this tournament context. However, you're so far ahead a lot of, of a lot of those hands that you don't really fear the free card. And a lot of the second best hands that your opponent might make are still going to be second best to you. Um, so that's that. That's 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 part of it. What good and bad things can happen if you bet? Well, if you bet, you can get value from worse hands. Like your your opponent should. That's the thing. So what are you getting value from if you bet? The natural answer is ace high, just because there are so many more of those than pocket pairs. Um, but like, you didn't raise from light position. Like, let's say your opponent has ace queen offsuit that he didn't want to inflate the pot with before the flop, which is perfectly reasonable in this situation, by the way. Like, I think three betting here with ace queen would be downright bad, not knowing more than I know about the situation. Um, like, then he checks, then you bet the flop. Should he just say, like, oh, the flop came 7-7 seven, seven deuce and ace-queen is a nice hand and I probably still have enough equity to call? No. No, he should not. Sometimes he should bluff-raise, maybe, but, like, that is not a value-calling hand in this situation. So why are you betting? Are you going to get value from worse hands? Like, well, if he has pocket eights, he's probably got to call that hand. But how many pocket pairs are there, really, that didn't three-bet pre-flop and that you beat, etc.? Um... For all those reasons, uh, you know, checking starts to look good. So, always, 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 what is the answer? Like, do we want to have a betting range? Do we want to have a betting range? Yes, we do. But do, do, do queens go in our betting range? How much better or worse are queens than other betting hands? And here we think that, like, in part because your range is so strong, um, you know, well, aces and kings probably make better checking hands. Um the the best argument you have for for checking this hand among your queens is the queen of diamonds that makes a very big difference that's like the single best 
reason, I think, to, to check this hand if you're going to check any of your queens. So now the question is, like, do you check any of your queens? My sense is, like, yes, because, you know, you would have raised down to, like, ace-jack or whatever. So um, uh, I think you want to protect some of your checking range. Yeah, there's a lot to think about this fairly simple decision. I'm going to vote for a check. I'm going to vote for a check. What do you think, Andrew? Interesting. I, I'm i going to vote for a bet, but I think you made a, a pretty compelling case. Um, I'm not sure I'm on board with the big blind should be folding ace-queen to a bet thing, although I can see where what? you're coming I, from I, with that. Okay. I mean, I, I mean at... Uh, yeah, I mean... In theory, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too much of a nit in this spot. Like, for tournament reasons. I mean, in a cash game or whatever, or somebody... Uh, but we're so short. Like, what's he hoping to do? Like, you shut no, down yeah, all the time your you, bluffs? Like, you don't have that many? Yeah. You, you may be right. I mean, I think, like, the hero shouldn't be raising all that wide, like, under the gun. We, I mean, so there's, there's a lot of things that should be constraining the hero opening under the gun here. The main one being that, like, the big line's the only player at the table who covers him, and the hero really is not that interested in playing pots right now. Plus, there's so many short stacks at the table that, like, the hero is going to be either, like, folding away a lot of equity or, you know, making an uncomfortable call-off somewhat often if he opens with, like, ace-five suited or something under the gun. Like, I think there's, there's a lot of stuff like that that would be under the gun opens in a normal situation that the hero doesn't want to be opening here. So like here is under the gun opening range should be a good deal stronger in this situation and then like he also shouldn't just be you know blindly firing away at the flop with you know, when he does have weaker hands like king queen or something there's a lot more incentives to check back with that or ace jack so yeah i mean you may well be right about that um it wasn't my immediate intuition when i saw the flop but once you prompted me to think about it i, I think you may well be right now whether or not this exact player in, in the one dollar tournament is check folding a screen here. Um, separate question, but I also think like if he's making some bad calls like that, if it is a bad call, he's probably also making some bad folds. Like he may not be check raise bluffing the flop as much as uh, you know a more elite player would be, or he might not be doing stuff like you know. Um, I mean, I guess he's probably not supposed to be doing a lot of like floating out of position to bluff. Rivers. I mean, he does have more 7x in his range than, than you do, and he may not be leveraging that fact as much as uh, like a Pio Salver would. Um, I mean, I, I, I think in general you do get too many folds on this board from amateur players, but I guess if we're thinking the hero's range should be pretty strong here, maybe that just means the amateur player ends up playing pretty well by folding a lot. Yeah, I think that's right. And I do think that you know, your you know, uh, your your standard wreck may call too much here on the flop, and probably will make more bad fall calls on the flop than the turn. But like, again, the SPR is four. Like, if he's gonna overvalue Ace Queen, there's a long you know, it's a long way to the river. It's a long way to the river. We can we can still get value against that hand. Like, yeah, I, I think my biggest concern here is is not so much like I don't even know that we want to be thinking in terms of getting value. Um, the way that we would at a different phase of the of the tournament. If, if we're really very close to the bubble, you know, when you slow play, what you're doing essentially is you're taking on greater risk for greater reward. When you, I mean, yeah. betting a hand like this on the flop is an extremely low risk thing to do. Your opponent's going to fold very often. When he doesn't fold, you're still often going to be a huge favorite, and you know you're going to win a, a modest but not tiny 
pot at a high frequency by betting the flop, which is a pretty good outcome at this stage of the tournament. Uh, by yeah, wait, 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 I'm just, no, go, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so as I say, I mean, the, the, the trade-off you're making, if, if you check, is you're inviting greater variance. You're taking off another card, you're potentially facing bets from a range that, I mean, I think you're, you're solidly calling down two bets after checking back, and, like, it's it's not a, like, you're indifferent to calling or folding. On most runouts, like, you're happily calling, or, I mean, you're expecting to be ahead like plus EV calls when you call down, but it is a higher variance thing to like check back and call down or check back and bet later streets than it is to just uh, bet the flop right away. And even if it has higher chip EV on the exact bubble or very close to the exact bubble, you're taking a lower variance line that just results in you pretty consistently winning a, a decent sized pot is quite desirable relative to taking on more variance in the interest of winning more chips. So that's right, but I feel like that's something that I would have said. Um, but <laughs> like, like, like you're the guy who thinks he's calling with ace queen. So like the hands that he's so by your own lights, the hands that you're folding out are dead to runners most of the time and have three outs sometimes. <laughs> well, I mean, he can have other ace x in his range that's that's folding and. I mean, I guess with ace queen, it's like whether he calls or folds; those are both better outcomes than just checking is. Uh, fair. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, yeah, I, I'm just saying, like, even, but if I think that he's folding more of the aces, that yeah, I, I don't know, man. Getting him to peel three outs is pretty good. <laughs> Getting him to it's uh, yeah. I mean, I I hear you. That's right. But like this exact hand in this exact spot, like I mean, we're talking runners or or three outs, like almost always. Um, so uh, I agree. But man, if he calls, if he checks and calls the third pot bet with three outs, like even with all this I- ICM stuff going on. Like that's that's a very good outcome. I'm, I'm losing track of which side we're worried on. Oh yeah, me too. I, I mean, <laughs> I initially said check because you know my sense is that we should check some queens, and we have the queen of diamonds, so let's check. But like, that's not terribly um, that's not terribly uh, relevant. I think I think some of these. I, I, here's what I'll say: is in practice, some of these ICM adjustments when you have these pairs, um, it matters a lot more whether the person has three or six outs. Like if you just do the arithmetic. Um, it, it much more often happens in practice, I think, that a hand that I would have wanted a call from in a cash game, um, I, I, I don't want that call from in a tournament um, when when there are six outs and not three. How about that? Or, or fewer, or two. Yeah, that, that's plausible. The other thing I would say, though, in, in terms of the number of outs that he has is like, uh, an ace, especially and to some degree a king, is a bad card for you, even if it's not in his hand. You're like, if you check back and the turn is the king of spades, and then he bets. I mean, you're calling, but it's a, it's not a very good spot. Yeah, that's true. It's even more true if the if the turn's a, a black ace. Um, I mean, that might not even be a call for a large bet. So, like, I mean, I I think there's other bad things that can happen besides just him improving his hand. Like you you. Are just, I mean, you're just losing a lot of EV on those cards. Even if you go to showdown, you're losing a lot of EV on those cards in terms of like 
potential for getting uh, paid off later. Uh, yes, but those are the same cards that actually put him ahead. This is a stud lesson. Like, it matters a lot whether the scare cards are actually, like, it's not like, I mean, contrast the situation where um, you don't know, like, especially when there's a straight draw on board, and, like, sometimes your opponent has improved to a pair and a draw, but you beat that hand, and sometimes it just gave him, like, an opening to bluff, but sometimes it gave him two pair or a straight. Like, there are, and oftentimes there's, like, you know, 16 or 20 cards like that. Um and, and then then you're in a bad spot. Here, we're in a case where there are eight overcards, only six of which don't give you a flush draw. And the ones that he might try to bluff or semi-bluff or, or just, you know, or bluff, um, those are the same ones, or, or, or that improve him in some sense. Those are the same ones that actually put him ahead. So there's none of this dynamic where, like, you know, like if he has ace-nine suited, um, a king might cause him to bluff, and that's bad. But it's not like a king is going to, you know, give him a backdoor draw or something. Like, there's no prize for making ace king seven seven. Um, so I, I I think that's an important difference. Um, all that said, yes, like there are six bad cards for you. Like in the in the imagined case where where your opponent has, you know, an ace or a king. Um, Yes, there are there are three more bad cards. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's especially the case like when he has King Jack, and a King will actually improve him, and an Ace will cause him to to bluff you out. Like that's a pretty bad spot. But like, ugh, so rare, so rare. Then there are just all those times he has Jack Ten, or like you know he has Ace Four and you know, he hits a Four, or he hits a Nine. Um, or a three, yeah. Picks up a gut shot and decides to bet with that. Yeah, yeah. That's like the one way he can improve to a draw, right? Yeah. That's, yeah, or backdoor but, hearts, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can have like five four suit and yeah, backdoor hearts or but like it's the turn, it's the turn, and you want him <laughs> uh, backdoor draws. Like the turn, you're so close to the river. It's not like he has a flush <laughs> one flop. Like ugh. Yeah, poker's tricky. Like this is like not a really hard spot. <laughs> I don't know. I still think, I still think it's a check. But like in theory, but betting is fine. Betting is fine. Bet small though, please. Bet small. Yeah, no, it, it would definitely be a small bet if you bet. Here, here's what Anthony says. Um, this. Oh yeah, right. This seems like a pretty good flop for queens, and I decided to check back for a few reasons. First, I'm not exactly sure go. what my value target should be here. 3-3 three, three to 5-5? Five, five? Sure. 8-8 eight, eight to 10-10? Ten, ten? Sure. 2x? Sure. We have roughly 42 hands on this player, so I don't think these stats will be at all relevant. But, but from what we do have, he seems aggressive post-flop. I'm thinking that if I check the flop, I might incentivize the villain to bluff at me on the turn. Plus, by checking, I can keep his range wide. Let me summarize this a little bit. I checked because I don't exactly have clear value targets like I would on a jack three deuce board. I may encourage the villain to bluff at me on a later street, and I don't think I can get three straights of value from worse hands. And I don't really disagree with any of that. I think it's pretty similar to what we've been saying. I think I, I would have a lot more interest in, in checking if we weren't on the exact bubble. And um, in, in terms of Anthony's analysis, I think that the thing that's missing is a consideration of potential ICM here. You know, whether that's enough to overwhelm the arguments for checking, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, I do think that 
dynamic, if, if I'm right that we are very close to the bubble, um, then I think that that dynamic is something that he should be considering, even if he does end up deciding to check. Yep, and, and I would also say, like, yes, SPR4, especially in a tournament, especially when your bets are small, there is a sense in which there's three streets of value, but um, I would just want to put sort of neon lights around the fact that, um, you know, you it's three, three, three streets of value only exists in the sense that, like, three small bets will get you all in. These are still very short stacks. Yes. Uh, and also, you know, this is a much more clear bet if you have, like, pocket nines or pocket tens. Where you have a yeah, yeah, really yeah. benefits a lot from fold equity, you know, because like you've been mentioning a lot the possibility of only having like jack ten, right? Which is a, a world of difference when you have pocket nines or even pocket tens compared to when you have pocket queens in terms of whether or not it's good to let the villain see a jack or a ten on the turn. You know, where it's downright bad for you when you have nines, and it's downright good for you when you have queens uh, in terms of you know let him him thinking that he now has a strong hand. Yep. Um. So. Our hero does check behind, so the turn, we still have an SPR of about four, and the turn is the deuce of clubs. So the board now is seven of hearts, seven of diamonds, deuce of diamonds, deuce of clubs, our hero holding pocket queens with the queen of diamonds. The big blind... Sorry, I'm just glad I mentioned two out draws, if only <laughs> briefly. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. The big blind bets 5209 into a pot of 13280. So this is... Uh, Good deal less than half the pot, maybe like 40-ish percent of the pot. And um, I don't think we have too much of a decision here. I think this is a quite straightforward call. Like any, the, the arguments for betting the flop are similar to what the arguments would be for raising the turn, except much less relevant now. Um, you know, the, the villain is representing a stronger range by betting, and... Um, we don't care as much about fold equity as we did on the flop now that there's only one card to come. So I think if this was like at all a close decision between betting or checking on the flop, I don't really see anything close about calling versus raising on the turn. Yeah. <clears throat> do not do, do not fold, do not raise. Anthony says, the turn is a weird card for both of our ranges. Villain's pocket pair hands are still doing great against my overcard range. I do see an issue with allowing Villain to control the betting, and that's that it allows him to realize his equity with his ace-x and king-x hands a lot cheaper than it would if I had bet the flop. Although I'm still unsure if betting the flop is the right play. On the other hand, I don't know if raising or not is the right play. Because I, could guess, I guess I could get value from smaller pairs and over pairs, and possibly AX the Villain thinks he might be chopping with. So if you guys think that raising would be the right play on the turn, how would you size the raise? I would like to make the raise very small. 0% of the pot is my raise size. I would, yeah, I would not raise. I would not raise. Um, your opponent's allowed to be ahead, and like if you raise, you can just the hands that you get value from, you can get value from later, and might fold now. Um, and like you know, the board is double paired. You don't have either of the cards. Um, if he's bluffing, you want to let him. Well, he, well, it's uh, <laughs> if you're he's bluffing, he might bluff you out on the river. But um, that's that's a thing. Um, but, you know, probably not. And, yeah, like, if he has jack-9 offsuit, you don't want to raise. If he has 8-7, you don't want to raise. There are just very, very few hands that you want to raise against. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and even against some of those, raising isn't necessarily the best play. Like, you know, if the villain has, I don't know, king-8, um, you know, he doesn't yeah. have to bluff all that often on the river for you to make up for the risk that you're taking and letting him... You know, potentially realize three outs on the river. Yeah, 
yeah. If if you are going to raise, raise as small as possible. Don't try try not to let you know pocket fours fold. Uh, but but don't yeah. raise. But don't raise. Our hero does not raise. Good job, Anthony. Good. He calls, and we see a river, which is the nine of hearts. Final board: seven of hearts, seven of diamonds, deuce of diamonds, deuce of clubs, nine of hearts. Our hero holding pocket queens with the queen of diamonds. Big blind bets eleven thousand five hundred into a pot of twenty three thousand seven hundred, so just slightly less than half the pot. Uh, this strikes me as another don't raise, don't fold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might think it's a they always have it fold, but here they can. You, you can beat value bets yeah. even for some pretty timid players. I think, um, like maybe he shouldn't be value betting eights, but sometimes people will be. Um, and they're allowed to bluff, and your hand is really good, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I, I, it's not like a fist pump call, but I think it's like a very clear call. You win here plenty, like, you know, way more than a third of the time, I think. Um, but please don't raise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's particularly not on the ball. I mean, raising would at best be a, a very, like, high variance, low edge kind of thing to do, which is definitely not what you want to be doing against the one player who covers you on the bubble. Yeah. Anthony's analysis. Uh, on the river, I don't think I can fold. Villain has a lot of hands. He might play this way that I'm ahead of, so folding is out of the question. So then the question becomes, do we raise for thin value or call? If we raise, would Villain call with ASX hoping to chop? He might. He could definitely call with small pairs and over pairs worse than queens. Uh, so yeah, for those reasons, I think I like raising. Actually, I think I like shoving here. Because if I shove, I'm giving, giving Villain 3.35 to 1 on a call, or 22%, and I think his entire river range has roughly 26% equity. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that means, his entire river range, but what we really care about is the like equity that he's going to perceive to have with the hands that you're actually ahead of, um, and then also the kind of like risk-adjusted value of, uh, of shoving here. I, I, I think... Shoving might be defensible in a situation where we didn't care about ICM at all. But even then, the villain's bet feels pretty strong to me. I don't think, I mean, it, I think it would be a pretty weird bet for him to make with an ace. Um, and I think, I mean, it, it's actually a perfectly fine value bet to make with something like pocket eights, I think. But um, it's, I don't think a lot of people do that. <laughs> I think a lot of people, as you said, Nate, are sort of timid. And even if they are going to bet eights on the river, I think they tend not to bet a larger fraction of the pot than they bet on the turn. I, I think this is probably a more polarized bet than it should be, which makes raising particularly unappealing from an exploitive uh, perspective. I wouldn't be surprised if a solver found a raise here when it wasn't worried about ICM, um, although I'm not at all sure that it would. But I think in this situation, calling is very clearly better than the alternatives. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm very grateful to Anthony though for mentioning the pot odds explicitly. This was something that was in the background, but and we didn't, but we didn't say, and we should have. <laughs> so that like, villain's getting a very good price even on a shove here, and like, it's, you know, we we would have to expect him to make some trusting folds or to like fold out what he perceived to be chops, um, or or sometimes chops. All that said, I think that there's just a pretty strong disagreement between Anthony and us about what hands he's going to be betting in the first place and whether it's, I mean, this is an early position raise. Like, I don't think that we're just like sitting here with a seven suited, like trying to chop block or whatever, ever, um, or even, yeah, or, or enough for that to be a big part of the analysis. So 
I think I think Anthony's discussion is good. Um, I just disagree with it on a couple of sort of important basic points that swings it very very firmly into a call for me. Thanks for writing, Anthony. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tweeting. Other folks who would like to uh, hear your hands discussed on the show, podcast at thinkingpoker.net is the place to do it. And if you want to get more poker strategy where Anthony and many other folks are getting their poker strategy, tournamentpokeredge.com is the place to do it. You'll hear lots more discussions along the lines of this one about uh, well, both tournament-specific concepts like bubble play and ICM, and also just general poker concepts about when to slow play and what the pluses and minuses of slow playing are. You can sign up at www.tournamentpokeredge.com. And thank you, each and every one of you, for listening, and I hope you all have a great week. I know you won't, you won't.